I'm Lean Printer, and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello, bonjour, falsha, bienvenidos. Welcome to The Motivated Classroom podcast, episode 112. So today we're talking about high stakes testing and can we use comprehensible input or CI teaching approaches when we're preparing for big, scary exams that our kids have to face. And I guess to sum this up, I would say yes, and absolutely we can and we should. And I will go through this episode and tell you why and how I think about that. Now, this episode also serves as kind of the first one in our little delve deeper into a little bit of second language acquisition theory and research around how do we as human beings learn and acquire new languages. And again, this is just based on the research that I've been reading, the studies, the books. And again, this is just my take on it. Okay, other researchers and other scholars and other podcast presenters, I'm sure, have different ways of looking at it. So this is just my way of hopefully trying to explain some of what I've been reading and why I think it's important and how it will impact our classroom. Because having some knowledge about the research and the studies and the evidence around how and why and when we acquire and learn language best or most efficiently obviously should play a role in how we plan our classes and how we teach languages. So that's why I think this stuff is important. But I think you probably will know after 111 episodes that the motivation and psychological piece is so important as well. And we've talked a lot about that. So now I want to look at a little bit more about the research on second language acquisition. And this is our first kind of, I suppose, little jump into the water or dip our toes into the water of this. Now it is the Motivated Classroom podcast, so we need our Irish phrase for today. Today's phrase is a little bit of grammar for you. Well, not really. It's just a phrase you use all the time that happens to contain an aspect of the past tense, which is hui me guji, which means I went to. Hui me guji or I went towards would be a better translation, I think. So that is language that we need and that we use, but it happens to contain a past tense verb. That's maybe a coincidence or maybe I'm thinking I want to teach some past tense. So I'm going to do this. So it depends on your outlook and view of language acquisition. So I hope I have wet your appetite or wetted. I don't know which is correct. So there you go. I'm a native speaker of English. And do you say he whetted my appetite or he wet my appetite? Hmm, interesting. And for those who are not native English speakers, it's wet, W-H-E-T, not wet, as I thought uh, for a large part of my life, actually, that it was wet. He wet my appetite, but it's wet with a H. So there you go. I think it is wet. It's not wetted. I hope I have wet your appetite for listening a bit further as to the research around language acquisition. Interestingly, just come back on the edit for this. And of course, that use of the verb wet would probably be compelling inputs for many of you because hopefully you found it kind of funny and entertaining that I used to say wet and you've probably acquired that word if you didn't know it before. So that's how comprehensible input works. Repeated, interesting, diverse and compelling. So hopefully that's something you got out of this. 
And now back to the episode. I firstly want to just point out and highlight that I have these workshops that I'm going to be delivering and much more focused around the practicalities of using compelling, comprehensible inputs and teaching with co-created stories. They will be running very soon and there are still some places left, although there was a large amount of bookings in the last week when I announced it on the podcast. So please get in there as quickly as you can. Go to liamprinter.com forward slash workshop and they are broken into three sessions, usually over three Saturdays, either in the morning or the afternoon, an hour and a half or two hours, depending on the course. And at the end of it, you will hopefully have a really good understanding of how to teach using comprehensible inputs, motivation, teaching for motivation and teaching with co-created stories. There's also the in-person workshop. I'm so excited about this that I'm going to be doing in Geneva in April. So please do look at that. I'll be delivering it with the Institute of Teaching and Learning over two days. And it even has a meal on the Friday night where we're all going to go out for dinner and chat and just talk about language acquisition and the podcast and other things. Of course, that's optional, but there is an apro of Swiss cheese and yes, Swiss wine as well. So it all sounds really nice and I'm really excited about that. So you can find information about that on my website, Liam Printer, and just look for workshop. But the booking goes through the Institute of Teaching and Learning. There's a link there on my website or just contact me if you need more information. That's booking up quickly as well. So get in there as fast as you can. Okay, so I was going to look at this in the last question and answer episode, but it's actually such a massive question and it's so closely related to how we actually acquire and learn languages that I decided it would be much better as a full episode. The question I get a lot is, okay, all of these CIE techniques are great and yes, they're very motivational and the kids love it and they're learning loads and they're acquiring, but I've got big scary exams coming. I am an A-level teacher or I am a international baccalaureate diploma program teacher or I'm a leaving certificate teacher or I teach the AP in the US, whatever it may be. Can I actually do this? Is this actually going to work? And I think Ali Sayel and Benico Mason talked about this a lot in their recent episode about trusting the process. We need to trust the process of acquisition and we do acquire language through reading and listening to inputs that we find interesting. So that's the key aspect. Now, that is not to say that that is the only thing that you can or even should do, particularly if you're trying to help students prepare for exams that have a narrow focus. Of course, you're going to need to try and prepare them for some of that. But the key is that you want to throw out that wide net of inputs and they will acquire what they acquire you can teach stuff to them over and over again and they won't actually learn it. So you're better off to try and help them to acquire the language naturally. But there are little aspects of that that I'm going to talk about today. So first and foremost, before I look at some of the other research and theories around language acquisition, is to say quite categorically and quite clearly that input, comprehensible input, compelling, comprehensible, diverse, rich input is the absolute centre point, king and queen of your language classroom. It should be the main focus of everything you do. Now, what that is often confused with is teaching always in the target language. Yes, you should be in the target language as much as you can, as long as you're providing inputs that are interesting. If you're explaining some very difficult grammatical concept 
and you need to switch into the common language, which may be English for 30 seconds so that it's clear for everyone. That's totally fine. But we want to try and give them as much input that's interesting to them as possible so that they're acquiring naturally. Now, there are many different language theorists, research theorists, hypotheses about language acquisition. And actually, it's quite overwhelming how many there are. There's so many. I'm currently studying a master's in second language acquisition, and it's just crazy how many theories and models there are for language. And the main reason is it's really complex. It's very, very difficult to unpack. Is learning a second language identical to your first? No, but there are many similarities and we'll get into that in another episode. Should it all be input? Should we have some output? There's so many different theories out there. It can be hard to get through it. So I'm hoping with this episode, I'll help you a little bit. But I think it's really important for me to say that almost every theory or model has comprehensible input at its core. Everyone. Now, there are many who disagree with Krashen's simplistic view on that's all you need in a second language acquisition classroom is just inputs. People disagree with that and they say it's unfalsifiable, it's too broad, it's too general and we can't really test it. So how do we even know that this is the way we should do it? But yet his most fierce critics still have comprehensible input at the core of whatever their model is. There is a general consensus and actually the more I read it's quite difficult to find consensus among second language acquisition researchers but there is a general consensus and we're all on the same page that in general everyone agrees that the most part of language acquisition happens implicitly. It's implicit. It happens without us realising It happens by listening to interesting inputs, by reading inputs, and that's when they start to go, but, and then there's all these other little things to it. But it's really important that we stay that first. If you take nothing else away from this episode other than comprehensible input should be the bedrock of your classroom, then that's fine. Take that away, tell interesting stories, provide loads of interesting input, maybe point out little bits of grammar in there now and again if you wish, but make it all about the input and you're going to be doing a great job in your teaching. That is how we acquire language. So some of the other theorists that talk about this quite a bit in input along with other things like we have Meryl Swain, for example, who has the output hypothesis. Then we have Michael Long with the interaction hypothesis, Schmidt with the noticing hypothesis. There's lots of different things out there, but they're all contain things that are quite important. So first, I suppose, if we look at Michael Long and the interaction hypothesis. So essentially, Michael Long was saying that interaction is necessary for language structures to be embedded in long term memory. Now, I was very careful there not to use the word acquire because you're not acquiring when you're using the output. You are negotiating meaning. You are asking for explanations. And when you do this, Michael Long argues that this makes us remember the things better because we have been involved in interaction. Now, it's important to point out as well that there's lots of psychological research about the importance of being a human being and interacting with another human being, the social aspect of learning, but also language learning. And I guess some of the most famous research around this is from Dr. Patricia Cool, and I shared a video on my LinkedIn about this. Really fascinating research around first language acquisition 
And essentially what they did was they brought in people from China to speak Mandarin or Chinese with the little babies. And just it was like for a few hours a day and got them interacting and seeing did they recognize those sounds and did they start to tune into those sounds as babies, which of course they did. But it depends on the age and there's a quite important period. We do it as early as we can. But then she got them to do the same experiment, essentially. But they watched a video of the same human being, the teacher, essentially doing exactly the same thing, but on a video. So this was like pointing to images and telling little stories and, you know, essentially looking at things and be like, oh, and then they did this and just seeing did the babies interact with this. But when it was a video or audio, the learning was dramatically less. It dropped off really quickly. So that human social aspect, even though it's exactly the same content and exactly the same person, they still tuned into the sounds and wanted to follow what was going on when it was a real human being. So the interaction and the social part is very important. And in a real classroom situation, we need some of that interaction in order to develop the language. So I think it's important to point out that interaction hypothesis. Now, in terms of the output hypothesis, well, this is Meryl Swain, and she argued that essentially comprehensible output, this is where learners are pushed to produce the second language, was also needed. Now, many of you will be listening to this gun, but forced output is not a good thing. And I personally agree with you, particularly from a motivational standpoint. But Swain essentially identified a number of ways in which output could actually assist acquisition. Now, she used the word acquisition. I would use the word learning or development. So she's saying that basically it served as a consciousness raising function by helping learners to notice gaps in what they were saying. So by being forced to output, you notice that you were missing certain words and then you would go off and try and get better at those. It provided a means for testing out, you know, can I use this and be understood? And it also helped them to understand the rules around the language. Now, she kind of changed this a bit and and subsequently she referred to the last thing as languaging. And the interesting thing is that Meryl Swain and her co-researchers, they conducted a number of studies that showed that talking about the language did contribute to knowing and using that language. Now, again, it's really important, though, that the kind of output Swain was talking about was not the same as that which arises in a grammar exercise. So fill in this gap and the endings here and there. It was to do with communication. So she was saying it helps in communication and it develops our confidence and our ability to communicate. Again, I think that's important to give students opportunities to output and interact and communicate. But they both still say you can't do interaction and you can't do output unless you first had loads of input. So I think that's really important to point out. Now, along with that, it was quite important is Michael Long in 1991 actually pointed out this idea of focus on form. So focus on form essentially draws students' attention to linguistic elements that just happen to arise in a lesson. But the overriding focus is still on meaning or communication. So it's kind of like pop-up grammar, just bringing their attention to something and then moving on. And this was known as focus on form. And it was taken a little bit further by Schmidt, who in 2001 really brought this forward as a noticing hypothesis. And Dr. Bill Van Patten talks about this as well quite a bit, the importance of 
conscious attention or noticing elements in the input. Now, again, I would say and my take on this is that we should only be doing this once we've already provided loads of inputs, loads and loads and loads of comprehensible inputs. And then we can start to do the noticing and the focus on form and look at the way this is different here. Look at the way I've started that sentence. Look at where the question word comes because they need the system in there first. So loads of interesting inputs first. But then I do think it really does play an important role, the noticing. And that brings me back to the very subject of this episode, which was, can you use CI for advanced students and preparing for high tech testing? Yes, particularly when we use the noticing hypothesis, bringing their attention to things, helping them recognize it. When you bring your attention to something, that's when you can learn it. So the idea behind this is that some forms we may never learn or acquire naturally if it's not pointed out to us. So the classic in English is the S on the third person singular. So he walks to school, she studies, she leaves the house. The reason is that if I say she leaves the house in the morning at 10 o'clock and he walked to school, I'm not saying the S, but it's completely understandable. If someone is learning the language and they just want to know what you're saying and they're focusing on the meaning, they're going to miss that S because it's not important. They, they still understand the sentence. They just haven't noticed that S. And actually, that's why that third person singular S is quite late to be acquired both in first language and in as a second or a third language or an additional language. Why? Because we don't really need it to be understood. So drawing the student's attention to that is going to help because now they'll start to be aware of it. But there wouldn't be any point in me bringing attention to that in the first week. Being like, oh, in the third person, we always add an S. Like, what are you talking about? I don't even know what the word walk is. I don't even know what leave is. I don't even know what study is yet. We need loads of stories and inputs and different interesting ways to understand what's going on. And now we can bring attention to it. So when we're talking about those advanced learners, that's where we're at with them. We're providing much more inputs to them at a higher level. Maybe it's through resources such as news articles and videos and YouTube and things that are made are essentially for native speakers, but drawing their attention to certain items in the input to help them to learn. Now, I still provide loads of CI and do all the same CI activities for advanced learners, like movie talks and picture talks and stories, but I'll be drawing their attention to certain things that's much more advanced that will help them in those exams, of course, because that's part of my role. Now, this really brought me on to and I want to talk about now is David Block in 2003 with his model, which is input, interaction, output. So I-I-O. And then in 2014, we have Nick Ellis and Stephanie Wolf coming out with the usage based model of acquisition. Now, in both of these models, there's still a hugely important amount of input, but the noticing aspect becomes quite important, but it's just little bits of explicit noticing and maybe drawing attention to it. So they were quite similar and they really actually made me think carefully about how my lessons look and what are they like for my advanced learners. And yes, I'm providing inputs to them, but there is more noticing going on and more drawing attention to certain things, but while still keeping it motivating and interesting for them through autonomy, competence, relatedness, of course. So in Ellison Wolf's usage-based model of acquisition. 
they basically say that the more often a speaker encounters a particular construction or combination of words in the input, then the more entrenched that construction will be in your brain, which is quite normal, right? The more you are exposed to the repetitions of certain structures or words, the more entrenched they become, obviously, right? And that's a great thing. It shows you the importance of input. And when a learner notices a word in the input for the first time, a memory is formed that binds its features into like a representation. So you start to notice it. Now, the classic thing about this is, did you ever have that thing where you've learned a new word and then suddenly you start to see it everywhere? Or you're thinking about buying a new white Fiat Punto car. And then suddenly you start to see white Fiat Punto cars all over the place because you're noticing them. So the same happens in language acquisition. So again, what they say is that exposure to input is necessary for acquisition. Again, the researchers are all behind us with this. Usage-based approaches are input-driven, which is really important, emphasizing the associative learning of constructions from the input. So you give loads and loads and loads of inputs, little bits of explicit pointing out of advanced structures in the input, or like that third-person singular S, and then that helps to form the memory and now we can start to work on that a little bit more. But one of the big things I took from this was not starting with the noticing. You don't start with the grammar and pointing out the third person singular S. You start with loads and loads of interesting, diverse, rich inputs. And you can keep doing that and you will acquire the language. Absolutely, you will. But for those of us working in classrooms, that's just not realistic. We need to provide students the opportunities to interact. We often only see them for two or three hours a week, so we can't give them more inputs than that. So we have to draw their attention to some form and some structures that are there. And I thought Cecile did a fantastic job of this in episode 110, when she spoke about the fact that Benny Go Mason's research really shows that story listening is enough. It really is. You will acquire language through story listening. But in a classroom context, we have other things we're grappling with. We have teenagers going through puberty and we have to think about their motivation and their social norms and what's going on and helping them interact. So there's different things that we have to deal with. So again, just whatever you do, take away that input is key, but the noticing aspect for your advanced learners can be really important. And then once you've done the noticing a bit in reading and through inputs, you could do some little exercises on that to embed that a little bit more. And then pick up on that on the feedback. Of course you can, as long as that's not the main focus all the time. Because if it is, then we're losing autonomy, competence and relatedness. We might get a little bit of competence for those who are doing well on it. But for everyone else, there's no autonomy, there's no relatedness and others may be suffering from competence there. So it's demotivating. So always think about motivation and acquisition side by side. Now, I'd like to share to finish just something that Ellis and Wolf wrote in this 2014 paper about usage-based model of acquisition. And I thought it was excellent and actually really made so much sense to me. So I want to leave you with this. If you are like me reading around second language acquisition or you're a language teacher and you want to understand it a bit more, or you have a child who is currently acquiring language. Again, I'm in that boat right now and it's fascinating and you want to learn more about this stuff. You may get lost in all of the theories and hypotheses and counter arguments and models really take away that input is key and that noticing helps us to figure out little features of the language we're learning when it's a second or additional language, not necessarily for your first language. 
So they finish with this, and I want to finish with this. I think it's so good. So they say, despite the fact that many of us go to great lengths to engage in explicit language learning, the bulk of language acquisition is implicit learning from usage. Most knowledge is tacit knowledge. Most learning is implicit. And the vast majority of our cognitive processing is unconscious. So again, what they're saying is that we learn language through natural acquisition and implicit learning. That is how it happens. But there is a role for a little bit of explicit learning and pointing things out and helping us when we're using it. So that aspect for me was really critical. So there we have lesson 101 in language acquisition. Again, I really want you to remember that this is my take and my view on the readings. I am absolutely not saying I know more or less or whatever than any of these researchers I'm citing and quoting. This is just my reading of it. And I'm always looking at it and reading it from the lens of one, the classroom teacher and two, motivation and engagement, the importance of those. So I'm always thinking about those things side by side. So again, thank you so much, Karamila Magiv. Thank you all for listening, for being here. Thank you for sharing the podcast. A huge thank you if you're a patron and you're on patreon.com. Go ahead and find The Motivated Classroom. If you feel like buying me a coffee or crisps once a month, I could certainly do with a coffee now. And a huge thank you to those who go on to my Buy Me A Coffee. And for those of you who attend my workshops as well, I hope you find them useful. As I say, there's some of them available for booking now. So go to liamprinter.com workshop if you want to learn about using these techniques in class, teaching with a more comprehensible input focus and motivational focus. Thank you so much for being here, for listening to the episode, for sharing it, for supporting it and for all your kind words. Again, let's not forget our Irish phrase for today, which is Hui me guji, meaning I went to or I went towards. And with that, I'll say Garamila Mahagav, Agasloanawalia. The Motivated Classroom Podcast is an original production by Liam Printer. I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter, and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer The Motivated Classroom. Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website, liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow The Motivated Classroom Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.